Hello, welcome to The World in 10. Every day, the big stories from around the world told with the analysis and expertise of the Times of London. I'm Stuart Willey. Today, strap on some augmented reality goggles and enjoy a night at the opera in Germany. Hear how a trip across Afghanistan 50 years ago changed tourism forever and could 1,000 tea bags bring victory at the Football World Cup. But first, President Putin has welcomed Iranian and African leaders to an event honoring the Russian Navy. He says glory to the Russian Navy. Last night, Mr. Putin said the African and Chinese initiatives could serve as a basis for finding peace, but not while the Ukrainian counteroffensive continued. Also, that Kyiv must accept its new territorial reality. You may be surprised to hear there are 60,000 women in the Ukrainian military fighting to change that territorial reality, 5,000 of them in combat roles. The Sunday Times correspondent, Louise Callahan has spent time with one, Yevhenia. She's 34, has three kids, and was married to the love of her life until tragedy struck. He was killed fighting in Bakhmut, and when he was killed, then she decided to take his place on the front lines, so she works as a combat medic. And she left her children behind to go and do this. Her children live in Kyiv, they're staying with relatives. To me, it was this really important question. You know, why would you leave your children to go and fight on the front lines? On Monday, she goes back to the front lines in eastern Ukraine. Evhenia's story is remarkable. You can read much more on the Times app or website, including what motivates her to keep fighting. Soldiers, medics, all the kind of able-bodied young of Ukraine are dying every single day. And she thought, well, who's going to replace them? Someone has to. If everyone says, well, I can't do this because of, you know, because of family reasons or because of different reasons, then, then we'll lose the country. I think that's, she's working on, her mindset is that she's fighting for an existential reason. The, the, the possibility for her children to live in the country that, where they grew up. Um, and which is hers. So I think that that's the way that she sees it. You know, if not me, who? To the opera now and the venerable Bayreuth Festival in Germany. The festival opened earlier this week with a performance of Richard Wagner's Parsifal, with a difference. I spoke with The Times deputy arts editor and music critic Neil Fisher, who was there. He told me the festival has long been innovative, from hiding the orchestra to dimming the house lights during performances. But now they're trying a new technology. Augmented reality, which I was looking at simply through a pair of plugged-in glasses. They were plugged into some kind of console at the back of my seat. Um, they, were, they were a pair of tinted goggles, and they, as, as the name suggests, they augmented what I was watching. So I could still see what was actually in front of me, the stage, but they added a load of computerized projections and videos and images, all of which were kind of swirling around my head. And if I turned away from the stage, they were still there. They, they, the, the whole area of the theatre had been, had been kind of rendered in these augmented graphics. And it sounds like this festival was a good place to try it out. The thing about Wagner operas is they are kind of like epic adventure films in certain respects. Um, they have these great mythological characters doing extraordinary things. You know, they, they have le- scenes of literal magic. Um, and funnily enough, that can be quite difficult to put on stage. 
So yes, we had this kind of giant bird flapping across the stage in through through my goggles, that is, and then with a kind of bleeding tummy. So it was all very vivid. I mean, it feels a little bit like a computer game. I have to say I was a little bit disappointed by the visual style. So will augmented reality catch on in other operas? I think works that are probably designed from scratch to have a kind of augmented reality experience are going to feel more natural and authentic and and it might gel a bit better. I think the future is quite exciting, but, you know, I don't want to sit down in front of a Lab OM and have flying tubercular courtesans rushing around with me um there are there are there are certain pieces that are sacred and or and should be left presented you know without goggles i would also say they were very hot and they were quite heavy on my nose read more about the storm of recriminations and a full review from neil fisher on the times app or website There are some things that have quietly disappeared with the rise of the internet. Public payphones, handwritten letters and travel guidebooks. One of the most famous, Lonely Planet, is 50 years old. I'm with Stephen Bleach in the Sunday Times newsroom. Stephen, you've been to meet the founders of Lonely Planet, Maureen and Tony Wheeler. Indeed, I went to meet them at their London home. They live between Melbourne and London. Uh, so a long way from uh, the sort of flop houses and uh, the sort of very cheap hotels that uh, that the classic Lonely Planet traveller would have uh, would have would have stayed in, and indeed they stayed in when they were doing doing it themselves. Let's take a listen. First book was about ninety six pages, and it took you from London to Australia, yeah. as it just it gave you it just gave you all the basic. You can eat here. This is a good restaurant. This is a clean place to stay. It's very cheap. Here's where you'll lead other backpackers. So really the book was was Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Nepal and then sort of Southeast Asia. <laughs> and, you know, it was a very amateurish book, that first book. So from that humble beginning, it soon became ubiquitous. It became an absolute essential. It was, uh, it, you had a backpack you had a couple of other essentials, and you had your Lonely Planet guidebook. I remember I did exactly this myself uh, with my wife when we went on the road. And if you didn't have one, you did feel distinctly lost. It was both liberating because, you know, you, it encouraged you to go and gave you sort of insurance policy. It could be a bit limiting because everybody else had one too. My weirdest Lonely Planet experience was looking for a particular cafe in Laos, but finding a whole street of identically named cafes imitating the original that was mentioned in the guidebook. In many places, if you didn't have a lonely planet, you just had no idea which way to go. I did end up in a couple of, uh, a couple of places where we shared the room with quite a few rats and others where we shared them with quite a few cockroaches. And you sort of accepted that at the time and moved on the next day. Uh, but by and large, they were pretty good, actually. Read much more from Stephen on The Holiday That Changed the World on the Times app or website now, where you can also peer into the Lonely Planet founders' photo albums. Pablo Escobar, the Colombian drug lord and head of the billion-dollar Medellin cartel, is very familiar to us these days because of television dramas and documentaries based on his life. But the Times reports today on newly released government files from 30 years ago. In 1993, it seems, Mr Escobar offered to surrender if his family could settle in Britain. The request from Colombia was seriously considered by the British government, but in the end was rejected. 
History has been made at the Women's World Cup today as Nuhaila Benzina took to the field wearing a hijab or Islamic headscarf, the first woman to do so at a football or soccer World Cup. Her team, Morocco, also makes history as the first from an Arab or North African country to play in the tournament. They won today, 1-0, against South Korea. And while Morocco are very much outsiders to win, the England team, known as the Lionesses, are hopeful they could win the cup for the first time. I spoke to the Times football reporter Molly Hudson in Sydney, Australia. She's been to check out the team's base. It's a really impressive base for the Lionesses. They've got all the comforts of home. Very little things, I suppose, on the surface, but things that are very important to the players. Uh, 1,040 bags of Yorkshire tea, uh, bottles of HP sauce, some some protein bars there developed by um, the All Blacks, New Zealand's very successful rugby team. Um, there's, a, there's a recreational room, which has got table tennis, darts boards, arcade machines, uh, so plenty for the Lionesses to be doing off the pitch. So how about on the pitch? USA has won this four times, Germany twice. Will England finally win? England will have been fairly optimistic about their chances of, of winning the tournament, despite injuries ahead of the tournament. But I think the the injury to, to Kira Walsh on, on Friday evening during the, the game against Denmark was, was a real blow for England. Um, so it will it will be difficult for, from now on. I think teams teams like Germany... That they're my favourite to, to win the tournament, a very well-rounded team, and they've started well as well. With the Times digital subscription, you can follow the penalties, goals and free kicks at the Women's World Cup. More details on the website, thetimes.co.uk. That's all for today. More from the World in 10 tomorrow. 